0: Hey everyone. Welcome to episode number 67 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates. And uh, I'm really happy to have my friend Sam Forget on uh, to join us today. So as Sam reminded me um, off air, when you see his name written, it will look like forget, but it's pronounced Forget. So that will just I want to drill that home for everybody. Um, and a little bit about Sam, he's smiling here as we talk. Uh, he's an online nutrition coach. Uh, he's a podcast host. And, and a fitness writer. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the stuff that he's working on. He's been featured on the PTDC, on uh, our friend Eric Bach's Bach Performance, and a few other places. It's great to have you all. My oh, man,
1: I appreciate you uh, having me on and getting the last name correctly. As I told you off air, it comes up at pretty much the beginning of every single podcast I do. So I always like to give people the friendly heads up ahead of time that it is in fact Forget. Well, I know you. So,
0: I mean, we yeah. got to, it was really cool to actually get to hang out in uh, in Seattle in last September at Lucas uh, to actually meet in person, uh, which is one of the things I love about, you know, traveling within the industry. Right. So, and of course, you had me on your podcast as well a while back, which is, is always cool. So what have you been working on? Um, I want to hear more about this.
1: Yeah, so I think when we had first connected in person in September, the podcast was still fairly new for me on my end, and that's certainly something I've doubled down on quite a bit that's been extremely enjoyable for a lot of the reasons you mentioned where, say, in the conference scene, you're able to connect with people that you're seeing online, and the podcast I want to say gives you an excuse as if you need one, but a little bit more of a push to reach out to people and, you know, connect them a little bit more deeply. So podcast is a big thing for sure. And then aside from that, my early days in fitness, I actually started coaching and training people about 10 years ago, completely revolved around writing articles. But then as social media got more popular, I got away from that. I think it's just a bit lower friction to pump out social media content than it is to sit down and do the deep hard work that is writing an article. So getting back into that, which has been super enjoyable, and then a little YouTube as well, just to kind of round out the long form content side of things. So some of that is... You know, repurposing the podcast videos because I record everything, but also doing video shoots on common nutrition questions, etc. So it's uh, it's been kind of spread out, but the
0: overarching theme is the long-form content side of things. Let's let's go into that a little bit. <clears throat> I wrote a recent article, I did a presentation with Kabuki Education Week that hits on all of these different pieces of like what I like to call career capital, or or certainly career accomplishment is probably better because if you actually read Uh, Cal Newport's uh, so good they can't ignore you. He actually refers to career capital as as skills, right? So I think it's a little bit different. And there's a sort of section, a starting point where what's the accessible stuff? What's the stuff that every coach listening could go and start doing? And I talk about things like I I love using Luca as a really good example of this because Luca owns bigger ground, right? He's his speaker presenter. He's done a whole bunch of different stuff. He's written for a whole bunch of different publications. We got something in the works for Nation again. We've done one in the past. And it's very hard to start from like, hey, snap your fingers. All right, cool. I now have a reputable gym opener. I now Mike Isertel with Renaissance periodization. But what can you do as a coach? You can start a YouTube channel. You can start a podcast and you can start writing for your own website. And all those things can build up. And there are countless examples of very well-known people that everyone listening follows and has followed and absorbed for years. And you think about it, it's like, well, I remember... I found Lane Norton early because of his podcast and his YouTube. And, and that's how I found Sohee Lee through the podcast they did together. Or again, you know, Mike Isertel does tons and tons of stuff with YouTube. Or you get an Omar Isaf, YouTube again, Jeff Nippard, YouTube and podcasting. I think I first found him with podcasts. My buddy, Matty Fusero, found him through YouTube. And all those names I just shared are tenured names who've been pretty influential and successful across our industry. So what are your thoughts on the value of each of them and getting started?
1: So I think the biggest thing is, They're each underrated, each area of long-form content, whether we're talking articles, podcasts, YouTube videos, and how versatile they are. So why I originally started writing articles was not to grow a brand or increase my audience. It was because I was getting asked the same questions over and over and over by clients. So I thought to myself, you know, say, how do I get more protein? If I just write one really good in-depth article on how to get more protein, yes, I'm going to obviously engage in conversation with the client and break it down, but I have a resource that's now set it and forget it. It's done once and I can repurpose that. I can take that same article. I can turn it into whether it's an IGTV series of videos on each way to increase more protein. It could be the topic for a podcast. It could be a YouTube video. So just in terms of how many different things you can do with that, but then separately, Whether you have articles that are ranking on Google, whether you have one of the more popular podcasts, whether you have uh, a trending video on YouTube, the things end up sticking around a lot longer. I could pour my heart and soul into an Instagram post, and I believe the lifespan, if I have this correctly, of an Instagram post is four hours, and that if you don't see it in the first four hours after it's posted, the likelihood of you seeing it absolutely plummets. And I think a lot of other social medias are actually much shorter than that. So you can repurpose everything for your clients, for other types of content. The lifespan of that stuff is much longer. If you stumble across my stuff, go to my website. You may read an article that I put out four years ago. You're not going to touch an Instagram post that I put out four years ago. So those things come to mind. And then the bingeable factor. If you look at my Instagram again, just use that example. It's unlikely that you scroll through post by post to see if you can find something valuable for you. If you stumble upon my podcast, you might scroll back a year and a half to find a topic you like or guests that you're familiar with. So I think to, you know the kind of recap. This the most underrated part is what the long form content, excuse me, long form content can do in so
0: many different areas. You're speaking my language. This is all true. Uh, I have loved encouraging people to embrace. You know, it doesn't have to be all three of the the, the accessible entry level sort of ways of getting in. And just because I say entry level. Jordan Syed has two very successful podcasts and one of one of them is one of the most popular fitness podcasts that exists out there. Um, Article writing is still incredibly powerful because it can lead into getting major published uh, platforms interested in your writing or give you the practice so that way you can then submit and apply to write for certain publications. And honestly, one of the differences between some of the people that we've known for a really long time because they've written for, and and t- I always come back to T Nation because it's the best example of it. Many of the people who we know of, Ali Lee Boyce, a Tony Corps, it's because they turned around and like, reached out and tried and submitted some stuff, and then they got published. And sometimes it's connections through the industry. Uh, that's kind of how it happened to me. But we know who a lot of these people are because they were interested in it and they doubled down on it. And there's a lot of gym owners, people very successful do great in their local area, word of mouth, whatever, who have never cared about going down that road. There's no obligation. You don't need to. But if this is something that you aspire to, especially if you want to get into more of an educational space, if there's, there's no dishonor in actually wanting to have a larger brand or be more respected or help more people across the industry. And one of the best ways to do it is to create content that gets in front of more eyes. And that does even bleed into like social media following, which people have this like, oh, I'm not supposed to care about that. You don't need it. But as I found, there's a hell of a lot of value in it if you do it right.
1: Yeah, that reminds me of a conversation I had with a more veteran coach earlier in my career, where I told him, and this is seemingly unrelated, but I'll pull it back. I told him I was terrified to sell. Like the idea of me getting on the phone and convincing somebody they needed my services felt kind of slimy to me. And my experience with sales at that point, that was kind of my perception. But he immediately called me out and challenged me and said, Look, if you truly want to do what you're saying you want, which is help a lot of people it's a value exchange. There's nothing inherently unethical about it. In fact, that's actually you doing your due diligence in order to help people. So when I think of, oh, I shouldn't care about the vanity metrics of likes and follows and who I get published by. If you truly want to help as many people as possible, which if you ask a hundred fit pros, 99 of them are going to say, yeah, that's totally what I want. It's almost your duty in a way. And again, there's nothing wrong. If you want to stay in your lane, you have your gym, you have your studio, but Generally speaking, if you're if you're actually pursuing the thing that you say you want, which is to reach and to help as many people as possible possible, that's almost you doing your homework in order to give yourself that platform to reach more people. I think about coming on this podcast, right? There's now X amount of people who would have never heard of me maybe prior to this, who ideally are going to benefit from something I'm going to say. So if I want that impact, you're doing stuff like this. You're trying to get your name in different publications, you're collaborating with people in order to have that
0: bigger effect. Absolutely. And we do get beaten down with this idea that it's, well, you're not supposed to care about some of these things. And at least in our industry, hopefully we can get people past the fear of selling. And and you said it, one of the ways I like to always put it too is if you've got someone sitting in front of you, now I'll say this, I don't like beating down objections. If I got someone in front of me who really has a ton of legitimate objections me personally i'm not the type of person who really wants to to beat through those but at the same time if this is someone who you know they generally have the resources they they know that they need lifestyle change and there's resistant resistance because they're just fearful of some aspect of it then this person is going to, on impulse, end up walking into another gym at some point when they something emotionally triggers them, they feel uh, they need to make a change. And anyone listening to this knows your own personal value system, your ethics, the way that you've worked with past clients. And I do not like highlighting the bad faith actors in our industry. Or like I recently wrote a post about like, I hate when established industry leading coaches complain about weekend certification trainers, uh, commercial gym trainers, trainers. nutritionists. That's terrible messaging. Like these are people you aspire to want to help and educate and grow. And we want our industry to get better, but you're shitting on all these people who by just virtue of their tenure or their, the way they started, I was one of those trainers, literally when I first started, that's how I got in a very, very simple certification. And you're talking down to those people because you have this idea that you you're demanding their respect or you think you deserve their respect when you've actually through your messaging, not done anything to actually get it. Then, but nonetheless, we know that there are some trainers who aren't as qualified or are transient or just simply won't do a great job with the people that get in front of them. I would rather make sure I did everything I could to help that person towards their goals. And even if it means breaking down some objections or knowing how to ask for the business, rather than, failing that person and letting that person walk in and perhaps having a bad experience in another environment right in the meantime by scaling our media and having a grander influence on more coaches hopefully our philosophies can reach more minds so we have a larger number of coaches who are doing things with ethics who have skill who are passionate who are devoted to continuing education so that way we get to a point where man like I would feel comfortable with anybody walking into any gym in this city anywhere and going, I think you're going to have a really great experience because most of those coaches are really good. I hope we get there someday. Yeah, ideally.
1: And I'm glad you mentioned the objection handling too, because I think especially when younger trainers and coaches are trying to build their businesses and you see all these advertisements and pushes for have a six figure business in six and a half days and do this and do that. Mm -hmm. And here's what to say if the client says this, here's what to say if the client says that, but this may sound a little I don't know, self righteous, high and mighty, whatever. But the metric I run things through is would I sell to my best friend's mother the way that I'm currently being encouraged to sell? So when you're just pushed to push that person, I think it almost creates like this rough start where they feel like you're after the sale more than after their best interest. So I do think a certain amount of objection handling is appropriate and ethical if you know that there's actually a deeper reason. Like one of the quotes I heard a long time ago that I loved is, it's not cost, it's confidence. The vast majority of the time when somebody's saying, I can't afford this, what they're really saying is, I'm not 100% confident that if I make this investment, I'm going to see a return. Because maybe it's a $150 an hour personal training session and they're thinking about you know, getting 10 of these sessions, but they're not sure they're going to get the result. They're not going to do that. That same person may buy a $65,000 car, which is obviously completely fine because they're confident I'm going to get this value back. I know for sure that I'm going to enjoy this. So um, yeah, I do think it's a little bit of an art, a little bit of a middle ground between honoring when somebody's not comfortable with it. And maybe it's not a good fit, but also digging a little bit deeper. And, you know, in most cases, you know, not most, you know, ideally in pretty much every case, you're doing them a disservice by letting them walk away and fall into whether it's a detox or, you know, get fit quick kind of thing. Yeah.
0: And with a bit of experience, we kind of know. And something related to what you just said, and I think this will help a lot of coaches because this question comes up, I think across the industry a fair bit, should you advertise your prices or if someone asks right away, should you like tell them your price? Now for me, advertising prices, nah, I, I don't play that game because that usually will just send people the other way because it, it you're attracting price comparisons and I, I don't want to work with price shoppers. Now, if someone asks me what my rates are for my online or in-person coaching, I will tell them upfront immediately. Because again, if that person is a price shopper, then they're gonna look at that and go, okay, no, I want something cheaper. I probably, that prob- client wasn't probably a good fit anyway. So I would rather save myself the time of doing you know, consultation along back and forth, only to then have that person turn around and try to price negotiate. It's pointless. But yet I found that when I have given people my, the, my costs, my prices, my rates, um, it goes 50-50. Some gone immediately, no problem at all. Okay, cool. Then I haven't lost anything. And then the other half, okay, cool. That's a hurdle that's already down. They feel good about it because they have some sort of sense through my media or a referral that I'm qualified for their, you know, their needs and goals, and we've moved past it. Ultimately, yes, as coaches, we want to make sure that we're establishing what you said, as much value from the experience as possible. And I found that most people who reach out to me about training, they're already referred in in some way, shape, or form that they already know what they want. They they see the value. We go through the process, they see more value. And then it comes down to okay. Uh, What's your rates? Cool. Done. Like they're already sold and they have a reasonable expectation of what they're going to pay for someone who, you know, has the kind of experience and tenure and, and positioning in the industry that I've worked hard to attain. And so it's rarely an issue. So I hope that answers the question for people is if someone shoots you a message and the first thing they ask is, what are your rates? I overwhelmingly say, give them the information. It'll save you headaches in the long run.
1: I would say at a minimum to at least give them a range. Cause I think that benefits both people. As you mentioned, Andrew, if your rates aren't, if say this person absolutely wants to hire you, but it's just not feasible at all. If they don't have the rates upfront and you're doing a lot of this pre-consult work and then getting them on the phone only to find out it wasn't in the cards for them, no matter what, that I don't want to say waste your time, but for both people, they likely would have been served just having that information upfront. But I get why some people are hesitant to, publicize their rates because they don't want to price shop or they want the opportunity to convey the value. So I think a good middle ground for a lot of people is also putting you in a range where you say, you know, my rates range from this to this, depending on what you're looking for, or it starts at about this much but I need a better idea of what your goals are, assuming that you have a variety of services. So it gets people enough in the ballpark to know, is this legitimately going to be in the cards for me? Because I know when I'm considering a service or a purchase, I want to at least kind of know be in the ballpark because I don't want to waste that person's time reaching out if it's not even an option. But by offering a range, you can put yourself in a position where, hey, it's anywhere from I don't know, $80 to $100 a week. But if we jam a little bit more about your goals, I'll be able to tell you exactly what the best fit is. And then we can insert benefit here. That's one last thing I'll add. A lot of people I find say the price, say the rate, and they end it at that. I like including, you know, it ranges from $80 to $100 a week. And then we can get started with X, Y, and Z, those things. So that's almost the last thing on their mind. Or they then have a price association with, Okay, it's a hundred dollars a week, but that enables me to do X, Y, and Z. It's not just a hundred for the sake of being a hundred dollars. And you're going right into
0: what the value you're delivering for that price is. Exactly. I like highlighting with a lot of my media, especially where coaches and trainers are looking to grow their careers. I like to point to supporting and connecting with people who are on the same journey that you're on, and I think of you as a really good example, someone who's you know, I've I've got Dan John coming up in the near future. You and Dan John are in very different places. I've got Molly Galbraith booked and coming up. You are in different places on your journey than those two people. They're fairly legendary and established. So when I go to events like where we met and, and the one I recently came up from Florida, I like looking at, all right, who are all the coaches who are on the same path and journey that I'm on. And when I'm talking to other coaches who might be worried about trying to sit down with a, a Dan John type figure and, and really bond with Dan. Cool. If you get the opportunity to do that, great. But you're going to get a lot more out of looking at the person who's to your left and to your right at the event and going, what's this person's story? Where are they coming from? Where are they going? Because over time, these are the kind of people who are traveling that same road you're on, and they're going to be the greatest sources of support versus trying to get you know Mike Ezertal to, quote, retweet one of your posts so that way it goes viral, and then all of a sudden you're made. It doesn't work that way. So how have your relationships within the industry helped your career?
1: So, Juan, I'm glad you mentioned the idea of kind of, I don't want to level people and separate them, but obviously people who are more established versus people who are a little bit newer, because some of the best advice I ever got, it might have been six years ago now when I first went online, uh, was from Mike Vacanti. I don't know if you're familiar with this stuff. He doesn't have a huge... Uh, I had him on the podcast.
0: Great guy. Yeah.
1: Mike's wonder, I mean, doesn't do a whole lot uh, in terms of social media or putting out content anymore, but he's obviously amazing. And um, I was asking him, like, how do I have essentially somebody like you in my network? I know like we have similar values, similar coaching styles, but he's much further along than I was at that time. And he gave Very similar advice, look to the people around you who are kind of on the same trajectory and then push each other, lift each other up and hold each other accountable as much as possible. And I do think some people walk into those conference rooms and they're kind of looking at everybody through the lens of how many followers they have or how big their medias are. And I'm only gonna try to leverage the people that are bigger than me, which immediately lays the foundation for not super genuine connection. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you can look at the person next to you, maybe they have fewer followers than you, or they're a little bit newer to the online space. You know, if that's what we happen to be talking about, but build a relationship there. If you're on the same path, if you're on the same trajectory of consistent effort, whether it's 18 months from now, three years from now, or six years from now, it's likely that you're both then going to be in the position that you were initially interested in when you built that relationship in the first place. Nice. Totally.
0: Um, you know, that's happened to me. There's been a lot of people I met, you know, 2017 was when I kind of first started going to these events and there's you know, sitting down in a, um, a hotel room, hanging out with Robbie Farlow, who's done really well for himself. He's been part of Stronger You for a long time. Carter Good. Carter's awesome, yeah. Carter's blown up a monstrous social media following. Eric Bach, who he'd been writing for teenage at that point, he'd been doing really well, but he continues to thrive. And just you sit around with these guys and it's like, oh, shit, okay, well, this is a room that's really blown up over the years. And again, it's, you said it, and I got to bring it back to this. It's not about what value you can extract from a relationship. It's not transactional. It is about when I go to these events and when I interact with people on social media, sure, like I want to be inspired and I want it to benefit my career, but I'm inspired by the example of what those people are doing. It makes me go ooh, you know. Gives me ideas. It gives me how can I, cr- you spend my time to create valuable resources. How can I support other people? How can I do a better job of my clientele? How can I s- work within my business to make it well certainly more lucrative for me, so that way I can look at things like retirement and making sure that you know I'm paying my mortgage. But how can I? create things that will actually support and grow other people's careers. The idea to develop um, this women's online group strength training platform that I've partnered with my uh, my friend, uh, my co-coach, Bailey Lau. So Bailey started with me as a client. She's still a client and I mentor her, but just seeing her integrity and everything about what how she approached her clientele, I was certainly impressed. She brought her business over to Evolve where I am and then we got talking about this idea so we've been running with it we're going to we're going to do a whole bunch more with this because the initial beta test it was supposed to be a really small group has just been sensational the women are loving it and it's an opportunity to help someone else's career while creating a platform that's going to be really valuable to me long term plus scale something that is going to help a lot of people
1: everybody wins mm-hmm. yeah i think that's another underrated component of Networking, like we talked about a few times now, people often see it as a transactional thing based on what can I get out of it. And then you'll hear the counter advice, which is, oh, add value, add value. And how do I you know, add value as a 19-year-old trainer to some guy speaking on stage who's been in the industry for 20 years? What does that actually look like? And we're not often given tangible advice for what adding value is. It does feel a little bit more ambiguous, but it could be a variety of things from just supporting that person's work. Say I'm an 18-year-old trainer who wants to add value to Andrew Coates. It could be resharing your stuff, buying one of your products, publicly leaving a review somewhere, rating your podcast, maybe introducing you to somebody that's in my network that I think you would hit it off with or you know, really benefit from or mention you to another podcast host that I may be friends with. So I think there are so many ways that you can. And I, I truly think that's the most effective form of You know, networking, which can almost feel a little slimy the way some people talk about it, of just exchanging business cards and seeing what you can get from people Um, and relationship building is, you know, how do I make somebody else's life easier or more enjoyable? And it can be as simple as just being a cool person to interact with. And I know that sounds overly simplistic, but at the end of the day, yeah, there's only so much an 18 year old trainer is going to do to add specific value to your business but they could just be a stand-up person. That's easy to be around. And that's still some form of value. Totally.
0: And if you are someone who is consistently sharing the work of other people, even really established people, they do notice it. And then you get the opportunity to meet someone in person. And, you know, I've had weird situations where I've met in person people who I've had very limited interactions with and they knew exactly who I was and they knew what I was doing. And, it, you know, that makes you feel great. And then I've had interaction with people who've been kind enough to share my stuff, interact with me on social media, and they were excited. And that's sort of like weird to me, but I've made sure I made the time because like, man, I'm not in the position I'm in without someone like that, who really likes what I'm doing. I want to make that person feel important. I don't want to go, uh, who are you again? And I, I'm just here to, to go and talk to Dan John. Like, no, that's not how it works at all. If anything, I'm almost more interested in seeing these you know, where these people coming from, I don't know a ton about, but if I can be a positive influence on their career, well, that's exciting shit to me. My mm-hmm. cat Ozzy has joined us and he's sitting on my notes. Yes, to parents. <laughs> yeah, he'll move your butt. He's usually pretty good about not doing that, but then again, I also scooped him up when he came close. Um, let me see. I, I was thinking about another good example. This is uh, your friend Angela Gargano, who I met through you at Seattle, and I actually brought Angela on the podcast because I thought, well, shit, she's doing amazing stuff. And she's got a really big media following. She's been on American Ninja Warrior multiple times. And at the same time, she was still pretty new to me. So I thought, hey, this is a great opportunity to bring someone on who I think is doing cool things, share with my podcast audience. And she was great. She was an absolutely sensational guest. Anyone listening, go back listen to Angela. Yeah, she's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And Go ahead, sir. Sorry. And you rub shoulders with some pretty successful people, right? It's, you come to these events, and it was pretty apparent pretty quickly that you like, rubbed shoulders with a bunch of people who've done really well. Dodd Saladino is another example, right? You know, you knew you knew Luca. Luca's a you know real standout in our space. How did that happen? How did you create those relationships?
1: So it was actually one of the first, I was part of a mastermind group when I got into the online space five or six years ago. And the presenter was telling a story about how they became connected with people that were much bigger in the industry. And they said the, they said the only thing that they did differently was treat these higher level people like normal human beings. And I know that sounds so straightforward, but a lot of times when you meet somebody that we consider to be extremely high status, or they have a lot of followers, or you know they just spoke on the stage, it's ten- like... I don't think a little, like a little bit of the fangirling stuff, fine. Appropriate, give praise words to you. Like, hey man, I love your shit. Like, that's fantastic. But beyond that, you know, say, you know, we met in Seattle and I'm trying to connect with you instead of, oh my God, this is Andrew Coates. He has, you know, sixty something thousand followers or whatever it is. Just like, hey man, you doing anything? What are you at now? give me too much credit to that. But just more of like, all right, this is somebody that it's not a transactional relationship. I just truly think I can connect with them. When I talk to my friends who aren't these like big industry people, I'm not talking to them about social media or business tactics. I'm like, hey, what are you getting into this weekend? What's going on? What are you up to? So interacting with these people like regular human beings that you just want to be friends with the same things that you would do to anybody else who is not equally high status then allows that person that you're trying to connect with to not be on. They're not sitting there thinking, all right, I'm gonna have to take a photo or shake a hand. And again, I think giving praise where it's due is absolutely appropriate. But the second they can kind of drop their shoulders and say, okay, he's just gonna be normal with me. We're gonna talk about whatever's going on in the real world and not, you know, glycolysis. It's it's just gonna be a regular interaction.
0: And do you remember uh, when we first met, who was I also there talking to? Who did I introduce you to? And we're having Rooney was right there, like old friends, like down to earth. Martin Rooney, exactly, right? And Martin's a really authentic guy, really, really awesome to hang out with. But yeah, Martin's a pretty big legend in our space. The guy has done unimaginable things, and then he gets up and does his uh, his presentations across the weekend. And you're just like, shit, I can't handle his energy, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that's a great point. Because say Martin, right? Like you mentioned,
1: he's an industry legend. I could walk in with my eyes wide and say, wow, I really want, what can I get out of him? Will he repost my stuff? I want to ask him about growing my gym, but then he has to be on. Then he has to, it's essentially putting that person to work to a degree or it's semi-consulting mode. Or I could say, Martin, I love your shit, man. Like, I appreciate it. What are you up to this weekend kind of thing? So just almost taking the stakes down immediately. And then when you have a legitimate relationship with somebody that is outside of just fitness X's and O's in business. Eventually, when it's appropriate, not that this is the ulterior motive, but just it ends up being the case where eventually you can end up talking a little bit more shop with this person as more of peers talking business or talking fitness rather than, hey, I'm going to bug you to do some
0: free consulting right now. And There's another element to all this stuff, and it goes back to what we started with, you know, about the writing, the podcasting, the YouTube and whatever. People, you know, people who are speaking at these events, they speak at a lot of them. They meet a lot of people. And they're actually surprisingly good at remembering people. Jordan Shallow, the muscle doc. I don't know if I've ever met anyone who is good at remembering names and making people feel important during presentations. He's phenomenal at it. And I know people who are friends of mine locally. Jordan's been here before. And Jordan knows who these people are and remembers them. It's actually wild how good he is at it. And there's a lot of people like that. Um, Let me bring this thought back around. The, The same people get to meet a lot of people. So... If you have worked hard at creating long-form content, and I and I hate using this word and I hate thinking in terms of this, but it's relevant, status within the industry. Let's, let's use that. Then it gives them something to grab onto. Uh, the fact that I've written for some of the publications I have has completely changed how certain people have responded and reacted to me. There are people who are good, good friends of mine that when we first met in person because we had some interactions, they immediately treat me like an equal because I wrote for something, the same publication they wrote for. And while I, like I said, I don't like thinking in terms of status, it gives people a road to aspire. Because if you achieve writing for a you know, a big recognizable publication, that puts you on the map and it's really attainable. Like there are some people who have no followings whatsoever who just said, I'm gonna submit something to you nation. And then they did. And all of a sudden they're published on it. You're now, you're now a published two nation writer. Right. And, and that's a really cool thing. And there are so many people who could possibly do that. And the only thing holding them back is, well, they haven't been doing a lot of writing in the first place and they didn't try by sending something off. Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe it gets rejected. Cool. Try it again. Read the voice of the publication. You're trying to get uh, published on. You want to create that relationship with send it again. As long as you're professional and nice, you're not annoying. Then people generally respect someone who sees the value is trying and wants to get on there. Right. Now, again, if your writing's terrible, you better study up on that <laughs> stuff and work on it second, for sure. Maybe, I oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just saying maybe don't start by trying to get published on men's health magazine, <laughs> maybe work on your writing right for yourself for a little <laughs> while. And work your way up.
1: Um, yeah. But when it comes to status specifically, I think that's one of those, like you said, you don't love using the word. It can feel a little, so, so, but I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with status when it's ultimately to have a greater impact. So if, as long as the end game isn't status in itself, I just want to be recognized or have a big following in order to do X, Y, and Z. I think that's where going back to our sales conversation, when you can reframe things is like, oh, I don't care about being high status in the industry. It's not about that. It's when you are more well-known, then your work reaches more people, collaborations become easier, you can put out more good stuff. And, you know, another status-boosting thing to me is the introductions. So say you and I have a relationship. You introduced me to Martin Rooney. He didn't know me 30 seconds prior to that interaction. But because you said, oh, this is my friend Sam, you know, he does some, he does some good stuff, that's an instant okay, he must be at least fine if Andrew's putting this little stamp of approval on him. So again, not that that's the ulterior motive when you're interacting with people, but bring it back to another question you asked, how has networking and relationship building impacted my career? Well, now at this point in my podcast, it's called Transformation Talks, and this isn't just a shameless plug. The reason I bring it up, uh, the reason I bring it up is Originally, when I started it, the goal was not just to talk about physical transformations. It was a variety of transformation processes. I recently had my Portuguese instructor on to talk about learning a language. I wanted it to be a little bit, you know, a little bit broader. And the reason I bring that up is because I wanted to have um, a stylist come on the show. I think that's something a lot of people only think extremely wealthy people can afford and how it can impact their lives, but just like transforming our bodies, transforming the way we show up in the world makes a big difference for a confidence and self-esteem. I don't know any stylists. I've never done something like that before, but through my relationship with Kelsey Heenan, who is the owner of HitBurn. I know you know her. She's absolutely wonderful. She knows a bunch of stylists. She's done a lot of work. So it's not like I met Kelsey and thought, you know what? She'll be good to know because she could intro me to some stylists, but through a couple of year friendship. Now I saw her recently in California. I was sharing with her as friends what I'm looking to do. She said, oh, I can introduce you to like three stylists tomorrow. So already that intro thing, it's indirect and inadvertent. It's certainly not the end goal, but it just benefits you in so many ways where you're typically one to two degrees removed from anybody that you could have a mutually beneficial relationship
0: with. Right. Kelsey Heated. If, if listeners, if you guys aren't familiar with Kelsey Heated, just go search on, on Instagram. Big following, very successful. Kelsey was great when, when I got to meet her in Seattle as well. And she was one of the speakers at the event. Um, she did a women's panel along with Kaiza fit and who is all Dana Santis. And I'm missing someone. Else. Dr. Jen for Thank you. That's right. Dr. Jen. Oh, she's wonderful. Yeah, exactly. They were the four who did that panel. Um, <laughs> perfect example. And uh, you know what, I'm just going to move on to the next thing because I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about something that you were interested in. <clears throat> and it's, it's boiling. I end up always talking with coaches on here and tends to be career success stuff, but I don't think you can have career success without the fundamentals like just simply what's been essential to your client's success and, and your success in developing a strong clientele. I know you care a lot about the relationship side of stuff.
1: Mm, absolutely. And to actually bring Luca Hosovar back into this conversation, a quote I heard from him early in my career. I don't know if it's him or he got it from somebody or a question, if you will, is how would I coach this client? If my entire career depends on their success and their success alone, because I find that for so many coaches and trainers, when you're putting out content and going through the sales process, that's almost like the honeymoon phase of dating. But just like a lot of people, the second you get into the relationship or the second you get married, you stop doing the things that allowed the relationship to be fun and exciting and affectionate in the first place. People do that with their clients. If you have somebody you think might sign up, you're hyper responsive, you're you know, super genuine, you're super high energy, And then when you've had somebody on your roster for six months or more, I find that a lot of people tend to take their foot off the gas and you fall into that trap of, oh, it's just Sam or it's just Tom. Like he won't care. I'm a couple minutes late. So I would say the North star is when I sit down for every single client interaction, I have complete tunnel vision and I do exclusively online work, exclusively transformation stuff now. So when I'm sitting down with my client, we'll use Tom as an example. My entire career depends on his success right now. So when he asks me about why the scale is fluctuating, I could roll my eyes and say, Tom, we've gone over this 40 times, man. Or I could approach it like he needs to get this because my career depends on it. And technically speaking, no, it doesn't. But if you approach every single interaction like that, you better believe your career. Is going to be in a totally different place because now he feels incredibly important. He he, Obviously, he gets better results, which that's a client success story in itself. He's more likely to offer a testimonial to a coach that he knows takes him seriously. So if I had to kind of boil that down, it's just how would you coach this client if your entire career depended on your success? And if you kind of put this on a scale with the things you're currently doing, and the things you hypothetically would do if your career did technically depend on their success and there's a difference, you need to close that gap immediately. That's one of the coolest
0: things I've ever heard on this podcast. And it's, it's not that it's unique. It's just, I don't think I've ever heard it put in that particular frame that way before. So I hope everybody like pauses, cycle back, listen to it again, uh, return to it. Remember this podcast. Uh, because there's so much truth in that. And it, this your career really does depend on this stuff because the little habits and behaviors that you bring to your work the integrity of your work those little things add up to the entire experience of how you do things how your clients experience you and if you let enough stuff slide like just like you said your clients notice it they notice you're disengaged you're distracted you're not as professional and they may not say anything to you but it cascades through all of your interactions, and suddenly you look around and going, well, why is my business falling off? Why am I struggling? Versus the opposite, which is just drilling this down and it becomes fundamentally part of the essence of how you approach every single client every single day. And you tell me the difference between the coaches that we've all looked around and seen and went, you know the trainer who just is, is really zoning on the client, smiling, you can tell the client is having a really wonderful time, the coach is focused, and they're doing really smart stuff. And we've all seen trainers who you know, the phone is out, they're ignoring the clients, they're they're detached, their energy is just like, I'd rather be almost anywhere else other than here with this client. And almost invariably, the former does much better with their career than the latter.
1: Yeah, significantly. I actually have another great example of how like it legitimately impacts business. The first virtual assistant that I ever hired, we get off to a great start. She was meeting deadlines. She was proactive. She was pointing out things to me. And I had a conversation, like if she caught mistakes, whatever. And I had a conversation with Angela Gargano, who was thinking about hiring another assistant. And when we first spoke about it, I said, oh yeah, you totally got to work with so-and-so. She's been great for me. But after that conversation over the next few weeks, I felt like I got lost in the shuffle a little bit. And I started questioning is my assistant working with too many clients right now? She's starting to miss deadlines. Things are happening a little bit later. And I actually followed back up with Angela and said, hey, do you know that person that I referred to a couple of weeks ago? I wouldn't necessarily put my stamp on, a stamp of approval on her anymore. And that was because there was a shift where I started feeling like my success as this assistant's client doesn't necessarily matter. She's doing things differently. I feel like she feels like, you know, I did the thing. I got the client moving on to... You know, And I don't know, maybe she had something going on in her life, but regardless, it impacted my experience, which then impacted this virtual assistants business. And I wasn't trying to, of course, drag her through the mud. I just, I don't want to put my name on something that might negatively impact Angela. So if you look at a very tangible way of how that can impact business, when you show up late three sessions in a row and you tell your client, oh, go stretch, I'll meet you over there in a couple minutes. And you didn't do that when you first started working together. Well, that client might say, hey, that trainer I told you about, he's fine, but you could probably find somebody else good too.
0: And I've observed this where there are trainers that I've worked near who I knew weren't ethical trainers. They weren't good trainers. They were charismatic, which can carry you a long way. And I was friends with clients of that trainer. But when it came down to referring business, they would stay with that client or they would stay with that trainer because they sort of like learn to kind of tolerate the quirks. It's like that family member, like, Oh, this is how they are. Right. Or that friend. And they liked it enough, but they didn't feel good about referring them to someone else. And so I would get referrals from the clients of this other trainer. And uh, I won't get into too much detail. There's some really unethical shit that ultimately kind of went down with that guy, but this is just a perfect example. And we see this everywhere in the industry. Um, I'll, I'll just let you kind of take that even further.
1: Yeah. And one other example of how, you know, focusing so exclusively on the client experience can impact your business. One of the first lessons that I was taught in online business that I very quickly rejected, and people have different opinions on this, is that when you're doing client work, technically speaking, that is in the business, not on the business. So say you're in the online space, you're always encouraged, Art. Right? you wake up, you do the things that move the business forward. So whether you're reaching out to get more appearances somewhere, whether you're working collaborations, and obviously certainly creating content. And I think there's some merit to that for sure. But this is where we get back into, if a client was on the fence about signing up with you, it's likely that they're the first thing that you'd prioritize that day. So what, the second you get that client, you say, all right, like the job is done. No, you have to keep showing up and almost a cliche, but reselling them with the value that you offer on a weekly basis. So that's one of the things that I do in my business is client check-ins are always the first thing I do. And yes, maybe I'd be a little bit more fresh for creating content if I put that first, but what better way to grow? Like ultimately the content is to help people. And then eventually in many cases have them become clients. So why would I not focus on the thing? That's the ultimate goal anyway. And as of right now, I think my average client tenure is like 13 or 14 months, I have to do some for online, which, you know, in person, people do some lengthy stuff, but, you know, obviously online, that's, you know, that's quite lengthy for some one-on-one stuff. And I've had clients in my roster from 2014, 2015, 2016, and it's because exactly that they know that they are their priority. And separately, a red flag to me always is if a client during a check and says, well, I know you're super busy, but, or I'm sorry to interrupt or anything that seems timid about interacting with you. I want this client to feel like my only client that is an immediate red flag that they feel like this is more of a back burner thing. If I ever have a client, like it's very, very rare. Uh, I know you're super busy, but then I need to change the way I'm approaching something.
0: I think that's great. Honestly, like, this is some of the freshest most valuable stuff that I've heard because I occasionally point out that selfishly these Episodes are really for me to just hang out with my friends and people that I, you know, network with the industry. Uh, and then everybody else listening, well, you guys just are bonus. So you guys get listed in you know, on these conversations. And it's just like, wow, this stuff lights me up because you got to hold your feet to the fire on this and go, Am I truly implementing this 1000% all the time? And I'm smiling and thinking about positive stuff. And I'm just like, you know what? Stay vigilant. Never let your guard down on this one. And I like what you said about that, about making the client feel like they're the most important. If everyone listening, takes this attitude approach all of the time, you probably have to spend less time on the client acquisition behaviors, because like you said, clients stay longer and clients will refer business. And when people are steadily referring stuff to you over the long term, it makes it easier to not have to funnel a lot of effort into what I would call sort of sales behavior or lead generation behavior. And then you're free to do the things, your livelihood is good. And then you can do on your terms, the things like article writing, podcast, YouTube, um, any of those other sort of things that as that stuff grows and scales and reputation and brand, and like we said, status grows cause there is value in all those things. And then all of a sudden people are just reaching out to you and something weird, are like, I don't even promote my online coaching. In fact, I hit the point right now, I kind of got to take anybody else on. And since the start of this year, I've been getting one new online client per week. And that's pretty much all I can really onboard. That's that's all I kind of have the time for. Um, I've got two this week I've got to take care of and make sure they're ready for Monday and Tuesday. They're both great. And then I've got another consult next week. And I'm just like, holy shit, what the hell's going on? And it's the growth of the online stuff. Now, keep in mind, I'm in year 12 of my career, okay? Long time. I did not have anything in terms of a substantial social media following until the start of, God, what, year... Certainly after nine years in the industry, right? And I didn't do anything with a podcast or writing or anything until after year seven. The first six and a half, seven years was really just crushing sessions, taking care of the clients. So, I mean, on one hand, don't be in a rush, but I also don't want to gatekeep people in terms of saying, now you got to pay your dues. Fuck that shit. Work hard at it. If you are in year one and a half in your career and you want to start podcasts, podcast, you want to start writing for a website, go for it you're going to gain skill and over time it'll get better and better. And you will probably look back and go, you know, six years of like, Oh God, the stuff that I wrote in year one was terrible. Cool. That means you've gotten better. That's pretty cliche stuff. Um, yeah. Man, Sam, this has been, I, this has been some really, really good, uh, good philosophy. Oh, I
1: appreciate that. And one last thing I'll add to the point of looking back on some of your old content, the reason why I put off podcasting for so long is if I write a shitty article, I can go back and edit it. I can tweak some things. Cause I started putting on articles in 2013 on my own website and they were horrible. Like I did an audit a couple of years ago and look back and it was, you know, I was, I was a very mediocre power lifter, but for some reason I was putting out articles on like how to be a great power lifter, things that aren't remotely related to what I do now, but the advantage is I can delete that. I can go back and adjust things. Podcasting specifically I want to say there's no margin for error. You can get a little cute with the editing, but like the podcast, that's it. You do it, you upload it. So that was intimidating. But I seriously regret not doing it so much sooner because it would have accelerated the learning curve. I'm what, nine months in now? And I, you know, and I'm sure two years from now, I'll look back at the podcasts I do now and think they were pretty bad, but that's a good thing. It's like uh, Eric Cressy, I remember early in my career, he said, if you don't look back at the program you put out two years ago and shake your head, something is wrong. So rather than look back and feel embarrassed, well, that was a bad article, a bad podcast, bad program. Good. Like this is an area and it's a cliche, but this is an area for improvement. This is something I can double down on for sure.
0: I have changed my philosophy about a few training tools within the last couple of months, right? Like shit evolves is one of the reasons why I continue to expose myself to these ideas. So uh, yeah. I hope and you've been I- at it 12 years, right? So it's not,
1: Twelve years, like I've made it. You're saying three months ago into a twelve year career, you're making an adjustment. I did. a, I competed in strongman for a while as well, and I did a seminar. I don't know if you know Brandon Lilly or Derek Poundstone by any chance. Yeah. Um, so you know, Brandon at the time is I don't know benching five forty and you know squatting eight hundred plus. Derek was doing six hundred something pounds cold on a deadlift. So in my head, they have it figured out. They know these lifts. They're still getting feed. They're 20, 25, in, excuse me, 25 years into strength training careers, and they're still getting advice and feedback and adjust like the most subtle things. I'm talking tongue position on your deadlift to create more tension, just that 1% of 1%. But that's what makes them so great is that they keep adjusting, they keep evolving. So same for yourself, Andrew, 12 years in, but you heard something in the last three months that made you say, oh, I can be a little bit better here rather than avoiding that
0: learning curve. Yeah. And it's going to educational stuff. Like again, seeing uh, Jordan shallow in person and you know his biomechanics work. I'm like, oh man, this stuff's really smart. Uh, and it made me change how I thought about a few little things. Like something as simple as one of the examples. I always thought, okay, single arm dumbbell or rope overhead tricep cable extensions, waste a goddamn time. It's such a small little thing. You know, let's do it bilaterally. Let's load it. No, nothing could be further from the truth. First of all, I'm rehabbing a shoulder. Uh, issue. And this shoulder stability and everything that's going on there is huge. And on top of it, just more unilateral stuff is seeping more and more into my brain or something like a, uh, what we call a Hercules curl with a cable. And it's hard to visualize, but your arms outstretch and you're curling it kind of up towards your face. Right. And how this serratus plays in there. And as a serratus stability thing, it's like, holy shit, never really thought about it that way before using arm isolations as Things that like manipulate and and develop strength and stability of like trunk musculature. This stuff is getting a little bit abstract here, but I'm just like, hmm, this is actually pretty valuable stuff. But anyway, that's not the point of this one. It's just planting a seed and we can adopt and, and change and, and just don't be rigid in your thinking and your programming, right? It should evolve. Mm-hmm. Where do people find you online? Where can they uh follow you? Where can they read more of your stuff? I would say my website is actually the best bet.
1: I do take social media breaks here and there, but uh, website is just samforge.com. And that's where inf- are, all my articles are information on the podcast, information about coaching. That's kind of the North star where I'm focusing most of my time and effort right now. Um, but if they did want to go to Instagram, it's just at coach Sam Four If you just see me missing every so often, it's because I do take those breaks.
0: Yeah, I went looking for you and I was like, help. <laughs> So I went over uh, on Facebook and shot you a message and made yeah. sure I the cell number. Yeah, you
1: met a you met a buddy of mine at uh the uh, raise the bar conference.
0: Uh, remind me who that was. Bobby Paycook. Oh god, I love Bobby Bobby. Yeah. Yeah. So, actually, I was thinking of him earlier when we were talking about this stuff. And Bobby came up to me and he was really excited to say hi. And he was just a really awesome guy and he made an effort to talk to and meet other people. I could tell it meant a lot to him to be there. In fact, he told me that. Uh, seeing this event on my social media was a reason why he attended it. It was one of the best events I've ever been at. Um, Nick and Derek, the hosts, did a killer job. The presenters were phenomenal. Yeah, like it was actually really cool to, to actually get to meet Bobby. And I and I got him on social media. I got him as a Facebook friend, and uh, and honestly, he's a good dude. So I, I'm i excited to see, you know, a young coach like that. I, I want that young man to stay in the industry, I want him to do well, I want him to have. Mm-hmm a successful career that's fulfilling. So it it permeates everything we talk about. Yeah. To wrap
1: up that point real quick with Bobby, obviously most people listening don't know Bobby Paycook, no offense to Bobby, Um, just, you know, a high school buddy of mine, but early-ish in his career, I think it's two or three years in now, he's doing everything right in terms of every time I see him on social media, he's putting out an article, he's interacting with other coaches in the industry, he's doing all this stuff now, building that career capital, or what's the alternative name you had for it? Career. Career accomplishment. I I think. Career accomplishment. You know, he's building that stuff now. And it's likely that just because he's an ambitious, hardworking guy four years from now, he looks at the articles he's writing now and shakes his head. But he's doing all the right things now to put himself in a great position to succeed.
0: And that's how he should. Uh, Sam, thank you. Appreciate you've been phenomenal. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. here. It means a lot. Of course. Well-deserved. Uh, For everybody listening, if you are finding me through uh, Sam's Media for the first time, scroll through the list of guests. You may be confused as to why there's 150 episodes before the 67. That's Mm -hmm. the old format with my old co-host, Dean Guido. You could look through there. and We've had everybody from John Berardi to Mike Izzertel to Martin Rooney, Luca, and the industry's who's who. And of course, Angela Gargano and Don Saladino and, and the muscle doc, Jordan Shallow, recently on top of many others. So scroll through, see if you find some people you really like. Maybe you'll stick around, maybe you'll actually subscribe. And I've got some great people like Dan John, Molly Galbraith coming up in the near future. And uh, thanks again.